0: Staff appraisals, you may well have had yours uh, this past year, I have, but I'm pleased to say that uh, my boss didn't write uh, any of the comments uh, that I'm about to uh, read out to you, although they're true, they're taken from uh, government employee appraisals. This employee is really not so much of a has-been, but more of a definite won't-be. bit harsh. Works well under constant supervision and when cornered like a rat in a trap. This young lady has delusions of adequacy. Here we go. Gates are down, the lights are flashing, but the train isn't coming. Some drink from the fountain of knowledge. He only gargled. And finally, I think this is a bit harsh, and could definitely have gone to a, a tribunal. This employee is depriving a village somewhere of an idiot. <laughs> Oof. be a bit hard would 't it Aye. now i don 't know about you, but i 've had the unenviable task of carrying out other people 's appraisals uh, and maybe not so harsh a terms as i 've mentioned but it 's an opportunity to review. Hopefully, in a more positive way, in a constructive way, how someone has performed over the past year. That's at the heart of an appraisal. And really, what it boils down to uh, in an appraisal is a measure of success. Has that person met the targets? Uh, Is that person adding value of benefit to the company? And being successful is what we all desire. Maybe in different ways, but deep down, we all want to be successful. And more, what's equally as important, we all want to be seen to be successful as well, don't we? And our society, the society that we live in, it gives us some very clear measures of what success is. You only need to look at the TV adverts, or you only need to look at the glossy magazines For men, are you listening? Success looks like having a six-pack with bulging biceps. Improving your sexual performance, keeping a full head of hair or at least no grey hair, and driving a sports car. This is how men are considered to be a success. For women, the message is you must have a toned body with no cellulite, You need to improve your sexual performance. You need to be wrinkle-free. And you need to marry a man with a sports car. If you want to know what it is to be a success, get a copy of Hello or the OK magazine. And you'll see example after example, won't you? Of perfect people with a perfect family living in that perfect country house. And we might laugh at this or we might think it's a bit of a joke. But we too can fall into the trap, can't we? We might use social media to give our friends the impression that we have that perfect family. Pictures of our children playing so happily. Not when they're fighting and arguing and taking a lump out of each other. That loving embrace between husband and wife with such a romantic backdrop. Not the picture of the ironing pile and you arguing over who's going to do it. We comment about how well little Jimmy has been doing, maybe on the playing field or at school. He's just so academic. We all strive to be successful, don't we? We want other people around us to admire what we've done, to admire what we have. We want people to look up to us. We really want people to aspire to be like us, don't we? But what does the Bible have to say about success? How does the Bible define what success is? How does the Bible differ maybe from our understanding of success from our society or our culture as we've been thinking about? Maybe how does the Bible define success compared to what our personal view of success looks like? And I want to focus on that for a little time. This afternoon. Now before we dive into these verses that we read earlier, I just want us to spend a few minutes looking at the background and the context into which Jesus tells this story. So firstly, we read of a parable. What is a parable? Well, a parable is a, a story, a story from everyday life using everyday characters in order to convey truth. Spiritual truth in this instance. It's a way of answering a question by way of an illustration that you can sort of readily understand and sort of relate to. So what is the reason for Jesus telling this parable, this story? Well, the answer is given for us in verse 11. In verse 11, while they were listening to this, he, that is Jesus, went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God would appear at once. So now if the issue of the kingdom of God appearing at once is the reason for the parable, well, what does this mean? What's Jesus getting at here? Well, in the time of Jesus, in Jesus' day, the Jewish people, they were waiting and they were longing for a day when the nation would again have a king like that of King David that we read of in the Old Testament, a time when they would be no longer under the captivity or the rule of Rome. They were looking for the promised Messiah, the Saviour, who would come along and bring this revolution that they wanted. They were looking for the day when their enemies would be destroyed and they would once again be found as, as God's people in God's place. Under God's rule, receiving God's blessing. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were longing for. And as the crowd's expectations were increasing, as Jesus was getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, in verse 11, this is what they were after. So Jesus seeks to set the record straight by giving this parable before us. And so he says in verse 12, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Now as we look through this story that Jesus gives, I want us to do so by asking a series of questions this afternoon. And the first question is this. Who is the nobleman referred to in verse 12? Well, the the logic surely follows that if the people were looking for Jesus to be made king of this nation, and he's responding to this, then this immediate reference to a man of noble birth must be a reference back to himself. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus is God. Jesus is part of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, that's Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. We also know from the Gospel of Matthew, the first chapter of Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, that his human ancestry goes right back to king david he's a direct descendant of david and so he's not only god but as a human he is a man of noble birth so at the outset we see that jesus enters onto the scene of this story we're told in verse 12 that the nobleman has to leave but why this is where the story on the surface gets a bit peculiar We're told that Jesus has to leave and go to some distant country to be appointed king. Now, if and when Prince Charles finally comes to the throne, I don't know about you, but there'd be a bit of an outrage, wouldn't there, if he he said, do you know what, I'm going to go to Paris in France to have my coronation. I think I'll do that. Because there is rightly an expectation that he will be crowned king here in this country down in London. You're normally crowned king in the country that you rule, don't you? But wait, wait a second. Let me just remind you that I said a few months ago that stories he used, these parables, where people can relate to them. Uh, And the hearers at the time that Jesus gives this, they could relate to this idea of a king having to go to a distant country. You may well have heard of King Herod the Great. He's the man who tried to kill Jesus when he was visited by the Magi. He died in 4 BC and his son Archelaus, he had to go to Rome in order for his rule to be ratified by the Emperor Augustus. You see, the Emperor had to give permission because it was Rome that had the real power and not Israel. So Jesus shows that he is a man of noble birth and he must leave in order to be appointed king. Jesus makes it clear that even though people may be looking for him to be made king when he reached Jerusalem, Jesus was saying that that wouldn't be the case. But where is he going? Our next question. Well, we've remembered just last week, haven't we? Last weekend, that Jesus didn't arrive in Jerusalem to overthrow Rome but rather to start a series of events that led to his terrible and bloody death on a cross with nails driven through his hands and feet. He didn't go to Jerusalem in order to be crowned king. He went to Jerusalem to be killed. But this isn't the end, for the Bible tells us, and we remember this last Sunday, just last Sunday, that Jesus rose from the dead, And he ascended into heaven, the true power in the universe, not Rome, but at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And so it's right and it's appropriate that verse 15 tells us that Jesus has been made king. We've been singing about that this afternoon. Now, before the nobleman leaves, what does he do? What does he leave behind? Well, let's look again at verse 13. We read, So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Before the nobleman goes away, he leaves ten servants with ten miners, one each. A minor, uh, back in the time of Jesus, was a coin. And it was worth about three months' wages. As I uh, recently read in a commentary... It's worth about uh, four pounds, six shillings, and three pence. It's quite an old commentary. Each servant receives the same amount, about three months' wage. So what do these coins of equal measure represent? Well, what do all Christians have in common? We all have the gospel, the good news, in common. The Apostle Paul makes this point really clear in his letters to the New Testament churches. This is what a a chap called Warren Wearsby, I think, helpfully says to explain this. In the parable of the ten miners, each servant has the same deposit, which probably represents the message of the gospel. Our gifts and abilities are different, but our job is the same, to share the word of God so that it multiplies and fills the world. In other words, uh, we use our differing gifts and abilities in order to share the gospel. Uh, this might be done formally, like this. It might be done at work. It might be done in the things that we say. It might be done in the things that we do, in how we live, our, our conduct. It might even be using our practical skills to show the love of Jesus that we have received to those around us. Another more simple way of putting it, I guess, is that each servant is given the opportunity to serve. We're given the opportunity to serve Jesus Christ. So let me just recap where we're up to. <clears throat> Who is the nobleman? Jesus. Why is the nobleman leaving? He is leaving to receive his kingship. It's a strange thing Uh, to do until we answer the question where is the nobleman going he's jesus is going to the place of real power heaven as king so whilst he's away what is the nobleman leaving he's leaving servants with an opportunity to serve him now with all of this in mind here is the question we need to answer what will the master jesus do on his return Or to put it another way, what will Jesus do to you and to me when he returns, when he comes back from heaven? Well, let's have a look at what Jesus continues to say. Let's remind ourselves of verses 15 to 27. It says, he was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his miner away and give it to him... Uh, Give it to him, uh, the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. In this parable, in this story, Jesus shows that when he returns, there will be three categories of people. He shows that there will be good servants, he shows that there will be wicked servants, and he shows that there will be enemies. And we're going to look very briefly at each one of them in turn. Now, even though he gave ten servants a minor each, we're only told of these three. When he returns. So the first servant he's done really well, hasn't he? He's done very well. A thousand percent interest. He started with one minor, he used the opportunity to serve, and he now has ten for his master. Fantastic. So what does the king say? Verse 17. Well done, my good servant. Then we get the second servant, verse 18. He too has done well, not as good as the first. But 500% interest. Two servants entrusted with the gospel, an opportunity to serve, and that's what they do. When Jesus returns, they will receive responsibility for 10 cities and 5 cities, respectively. And I'm sure that you're sat here now thinking, what does all this mean? Let's work through it. Jesus has given his followers, his servants, a job to do before he returns. And one day he will come back and he will do an appraisal. He'll do an end of life appraisal. Jesus has given us the means to do this. It is Jesus that gives us the minor, And it is the minor that has earned more. Do you see that in verses 16 and 18? We're to use it, but the real treasure is the miner. The gospel. But what about the cities? One servant receives ten and the other five. Is this in some way saying uh, that we can receive salvation from God by what we do? Our works? Well, no. No one gets to heaven because of anything that they do. We can only enter into a relationship with Jesus as our king by recognizing that he alone did it all. On the cross when he died in our place. Whatever we do has got nothing to do with us earning our salvation. But we are to show how trustworthy we are now uh, with the opportunities that we have now when, and for when Jesus returns. And he will rep- appraise how responsible we've been. So let me ask you this afternoon, are you, am I, or are, are we... Good servants? Is that a summary of how Jesus will appraise our lives? We all have one life to live, don't we? Do we take the opportunity to serve the way that we're called to? Do we take those opportunities? I'm not saying that we all have to be front up people at the front. I'm not saying that we all have to be in charge of this that or the other. We can serve in many and varied ways, can't we? It may even mean doing somebody shopping for them for the glory of God. Are we willing to give our time over to Jesus or do we see our free time as our own? It may mean getting to know somebody who doesn't fit into our lifestyle or our social circle. But I'm going to share with that person the unconditional love that I've received from Jesus. We can do this in lots and lots of ways. We started off this afternoon thinking about success and having a successful life, didn't we? Do you know what? Success is this. When Jesus returns and says to you and me, Well done, my good servant. That is real success. That's what success really looks like. Now, what about the wicked servants? One of these is introduced in verse 20. He's been given the minor, but he does absolutely nothing with it, he doesn't even put it in a bank in order to gain interest. Why has he done nothing? Well, we're told in verse 21 that he's afraid. He thinks that his master is a hard man. He's afraid that he would would work and the boss would come and take away the results for himself. Yet we've seen that the miner was given to him from the master. We've seen with the good servants that the master then gives them cities in return for coins this dirt servant he doesn't do as he's told and the reason is this he doesn't trust his master there's no trust in other words there's no faith he's not really a servant he seems associated with true servants but actually he's not one himself there are lots and lots of people up and down our land Who look like servants of Jesus. They may go to church. They seem religious. But yet they don't really trust him. They haven't really accepted Jesus as their saviour. By the grace of God. Through faith. And this is demonstrated. This is evidenced in their inactivity. When Jesus returns, he will say to these people, you wicked servant, verse 22. Can I ask, on that final day when Jesus returns, will there be enough evidence to convict us of being a servant of Jesus Christ? So we've looked at the good servants We've looked at the wicked servants and now what about the enemies? These are referred to in verse 14 and again in verse 27. Notice that they're not identified as servants but rather subjects, verse 14. This is what verse 27 says. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Now we've seen so far that this this noble man he's, he's not a hard man is he He is fair and he's just we've seen that but he will not tolerate rebellion and he will not tolerate uh, a throwing against of his rule or authority He is king and he should be treated as such he should be regarded as such and so there should be submission to his rule not downright revolt. And so Jesus promises that one day he will return to this world and on that day his enemies will be destroyed. Those people who have not personally trusted in Jesus and submitted submitted to his loving rule, they will experience the right and just punishment of God. Now, this is clearly a very stark prospect, isn't it? But it's also a loving warning. It's a loving warning because it allows people like us to do something about it. It allows us to recognize our position before God. And it allows us to turn and accept Jesus as the master of our lives. In other words, it allows us To trust in Jesus as our king. So which category do we fit into? Jesus is master. There is going to be a day of evaluation. A final day of appraisal. What will our appraisal say? Will our appraisal say good servant? Or will it say wicked servant or enemy? Enemy. You know, none of us want to be seen as failures, do we? we? We thought about that earlier. We want to be seen as successful. But let me make one thing really clear. Even if we have a life that, is, that really is just like something out of that hello magazine, even if we really do have it all here and now, if we really do think that we've made it, then we've only really got it all if we know that we're right with God. Without God, our lives will have been a total waste of time. Whether we become millionaires, whether we're the best mum or dad in the world, whether we keep our looks or not, what we achieve by this world's standards will be worthless without God. If you want to be a success in your life, then we need to turn and trust in Jesus and then live our lives for him using the opportunities that we have to serve him and living out the gospel. I really want us all to be ready for that final day of appraisal.